Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on this Thursday, February 15th, 2024. Hope you had a wonderful, lovely, and perhaps romantic Valentine's Day. I won't ask too many questions, so don't worry about that. Uh, we, at the tail end of our show yesterday, had some gremlins in the system. I, I try to normally blame anything that happens on Bill C-11 and the Liberal government's internet regulation. I'm not sure I can squarely lay the blame at their feet on this one, but it was in an effort to get our good friend David Haskell on, who is a professor at Laurier University and associate professor of digital media and journalism on the show because he had penned a phenomenal study and a very revealing study on DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we are very grateful we were able to get him back on to kick us off today. I, I gave lots of my thoughts yesterday when I was filling time while we tried to sort out the tech issues. So we'll get right to David now. David, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. I'm really, I'm really glad that we were able to get rid of those gremlins. Yeah, so am I. Let's just start, before we get into the conclusions, why did you want to dig in, dig into this in the first place? Uh, well, I think that the most recent reason, I, I guess my, my overarching reason for anything that I research is I want to be able to tell the truth. And sometimes when it seems like what I'm hearing really doesn't jive with what the reality of the situation is, then I want to dig into it. But but I had a friend um, who was a, a high school principal out of Toronto, and um, he took his own life. And and when he did, it was after he'd been a part of some DEI training sessions. Now, I, I'm, I'm not trying to make false equivalencies here. I, I just know that his lawyer said that it was after those DEI training sessions that he, he had to take, they were mandatory, that his mental health deteriorated, um, his, he, was, he was really berated in, in, these, uh, in these sessions, um, and it, it just demoralized him. Well, anyway, uh, after his death, it, it was um, on the website of the consultant, the DEI consultant, that she seemed to want to cover her herself. And uh, she said that, you know, she was trying to make the world a better place. And that that Richard's death it, it was my friend. Uh, it said R Richard's death was being mobilized and and uh, weaponized. And and so anyway, I wanted to challenge her claim. Does DEI make the world better? Because that's what she said is her explanation. And so I started looking into the research on that. And, and I was grateful for the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. They said that they would commission that work. And so that really led me down the path. And then uh, I found some startling conclusions. Well, let's, let's go into that. What did you find? Well, what I found was that there is no empirical evidence that it does anything good. DEI instruction, this mandatory exercise that's we see in businesses, government, all our educational institutes, no empirical evidence that it does anything good, but there's clear evidence that it can do harm. And, th and this wasn't my own original research, incidentally. This is research that is out there, and this is really good stuff. It's coming from Harvard and Princeton and, uh, well, just all these elite institutions. And it's known 
but it's not popularized. For some reason, it gets swept under the rug. So I simply am bringing it back so that people can take a look at it. And, uh, and it's pretty damning. So let's let's go back and drill into this a bit because the premise of DEI is that it is a tool against all of these biases biases that we all hold in ourselves. I mean, I'm assuming there are a, a number of premises, but if it were working, what would the data show? Well, we that's a great question. The effect would be so we talk about effect size. That's one of the major measurements we use as social scientists. So the effect size would be great. And, and it would go like this. You go to DEI training, and uh, if you had prejudices, they would be uh, eliminated or lowered. If you had um, a predilection not to work with people of other racial or uh, minority groups, then, then you would be more likely to work with them. But what we've seen through, again, meta-analysis after meta-analysis, so this is where you take hundreds of studies and you statistically aggregate those findings. What we see is the effect size is about zero. And I say about zero, it becomes zero the more rigorous the methodology. So the better the study, the more it was able to prove that DEI does nothing good. So that that I find to be quite interesting because I ideally you would have people that are invested in this that are motivated by what on the surface could be a very pure thing. We don't want racism, we don't want bias, we don't want prejudice. So you're left with do they either not care about these data? Do they not care about these findings? Or is the motivation actually something else? Now I, I'm inclined to say it's probably the latter, but I'm I'm curious where you land on this. I, I've given it a lot of thought. And, and I really, like you, I think that there are some people who, who truly are coming at this from a very good spot. They want to see racism eliminated, as we all do, or any right person, person should. Uh, they want to see people getting along. And, and those are noble ideas, right? So I'm sure that there are some people who really do think that that's the case. But they have to, I'm thinking about the people who are setting policy. I'm thinking about the people who are, are the researchers. They have to know this research. I mean, I was able to find it. And so we do have to look at other motivations because the empirical the empirical proofs just aren't there. So why do they keep advancing advancing this? And so I would I would go through some other motives. Uh, one is financial. I mean, as it stands now, after the George Floyd riots, DEI as an industry just exploded. I mean, it was already huge, but now it's a, a multi-billion dollar industry. So th there's an expression that there are none so blind as those whose paycheck depends on them not being able to see. So there might be some of that going on there. The people writing books on this stuff like uh, Ibram X. Kendi and uh, D'Angelo, Robin D'Angelo, they're making millions on their books promoting DEI ideas. So they have a vested interest. Also, uh, consultants, they're making a ton of dough. Uh, for example, um, in Toronto, at the Toronto District School Board, the the, woman, the DEI consultant uh, I spoke of who berated my friend Richard, she made around 61000 for four days of workshops, and that was a sole source contract. That's really good money. Uh, you don't want to find reasons why what you're promoting are wrong when you're making that kind of money. But from, from a business stand, standpoint as well, I think there's motivation among corporations 
to really push DEI because it diverts attention from other things. I, I remember when the the there were the one percent riots or the the Occupy Wall Street riots going on, and they were looking at corporate corruption. Well, it was shortly after that that DEI suddenly became something very favored among corporations. It was like, don't look over here, but I want you to look over here. Look how good we are. We could virtue signal. Mm. So from a corporate point of view, it makes a lot of sense to turn attention to something else that has a lot of popular appetite. But then you come to those people who maybe, maybe they know that it does do harm. And again, we can talk about the studies that actually show it does do harm. And maybe they're okay with that. Maybe they are motivated by revenge. Maybe they are motivated by a desire to see society unravel so they can remake it in an image they like better. You know, one of the things I remember from my old, you know, research methods classes in, in university, if I'm recalling correctly, is this this idea called conceptual stretching, where you kind of morph and, uh, you know, move around a concept so it fits what you're researching. Now, maybe there's a, a justification for this, but one of the most extreme examples that you bring up in your piece is the idea of changing what white means to adapt to the pre-existing conclusion. Now, normally in, in a course of scientific research, you uh, test a hypothesis. If you are finding that's not true, you uh, go back and you can question why, but you don't start changing around the language to make your conclusions fit what you want. We see this with Asians who are ethnic minorities. There's no denying they're ethnic minorities. They tend to have very, very high performance scores in academia, in society. They're, they're very successful. They make a lot of money. So that doesn't really fit with the DEI mold. So we have to find ways to call Asians white. Yeah, yeah, we, we actually- or white adjacent, you say, in your study. That's right. Well, I, again, you begin digging into this stuff and you see that there have been school boards in the United States that have actually removed the category of Asian and they just lump them in with white. And, and that's DEI uh, writ large, because what it essentially is doing, it's saying that we're going to uh, create groups of oppressor and oppressed. And as soon as you perform beyond beyond whatever the expectations are, of the average or, or however they define it, suddenly you get into trouble. So we see that these Asian students in, in high schools across, or in a couple uh, school boards in the US, they got lumped in with whites. But we also saw it just recently in the last year with the elite schools like Harvard and um, uh, North Carolina, they were also being discriminatory against Asian students. They were, making sure that they couldn't get in to it couldn't enroll at places like Harvard. They had to have almost perfect test scores. And the rationale, again, this is coming from the DEI office was there. Oh, we have, uh, we, we, we made it for the first uh, few minutes, but we've had a, a freeze on uh, David's end there. We'll try to get that sorted out and uh, get him back on. But uh, it is fascinating. And this was, again, something we saw specifically in the context of, of U.S. academia, where the idea of, again, just lumping Asians in with whites, because otherwise you can't actually find a way to, to let the conclusion work. We have David back. David, that's all for it. Yeah, sorry about that. Again, something's going on. No, wrong. I said we made it through the first 10 minutes. I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I'm just talking about uh, 
what was happening at the elite universities like Harvard, where they mm -hmm. were actually making it more difficult for Asian students to get in. They had to have a near perfect test score in order to get in. Uh, the the people involved in this actually took it to the Supreme Court and won. They said, you can't discriminate against us like this. But the notion that they could be discriminated against was pumped directly out of the DEI offices at these elite universities. And what, what their justification was, we can't allow merit alone to allow the, to, to let these uh, Asian American students in because there would be too many. And that wouldn't be the right kind of diversity. Well, that begs the question, what is the right kind of diversity? Uh, is there this, this uh, golden mean or golden model that's in the heads of these DEI professionals that they get to decide who gets to, to be part of something and who doesn't? So that's a, a real worry uh, that we saw. And it was definitely uh, a good decision by the Supreme Court to say that this shouldn't be happening. I think now we just need to have more universities realizing that all DEI based on the evidence, needs to go. One of the, the dangers that I would see in, in this is that some people could look at the findings and say, the problem isn't with the core premise. The problem is just with, it's like the real communism hasn't been tried approach to this. Right. Say, no, 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 real DEI hasn't been tried yet. We've got to tweak and, and fine tune it. But I, I think there are two issues there. Number one, uh, you mentioned that there's this massive demand for DEI right now. I don't really think there's any rigorous uh, investigation into the qualifications of the people that are doing these programs. I think if you say the right things and you put up a splashy website, it's probably pretty easy to get a major contract from, you know, Coca-Cola, which uh, doesn't want to be accused of being racist, just to, you know, pull a company out of thin air. Uh, but also, I think you have people that are in this space that are really making it up as they go along. And, and, and I fear that the takeaway from some of the studies you've pointed to and even your own work is, okay, we've got to try to find a way to make this more rigorous instead of going back to the basics and saying, maybe this is just a fundamentally flawed premise. Yeah, and I would just go back to the basics mm -hmm. because the basics were actually working. So if you look from the 1960s up into the 1980s, there was a significant drop in real racism. And, and now DEI, it, it can be, uh, it can look at race or it can look at uh, gender and sexuality. But let me just talk a little bit about what we know about the reality of racism. Any sociological data that you look at from the 1960s into the 1990s, into the 2000s, in fact, showed every measure was going down in terms of racism and going up in terms of acceptance between racial groups. And some of the things that uh, were evidence of that, we, we often ask questions as sociologists, would you mind if someone of a different race lived next to you? Year after year after year after year, people, more people were saying, no problem, absolutely. Then another question we ask is, would you be all right if your son or daughter uh, married someone of another race? Again, year after year after year, we were seeing that uh, go up, that people were very accepting, accepting. So these were real measures that racism was going down. And what were we doing at those times to make it happen? We were simply saying, treat each other equally, judge people by the content of their character. That was working. And now we've got a DEI industry that is actually encouraging discrimination. We have people like uh, Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote How to Be Anti-Racist, actually saying that 
The only cure for past discrimination is present discrimination. That's madness. Wow. Well, it's fascinating research published by the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. The study is called What DEI Research Concludes About Diversity Training. It is divisive, counterproductive, and unnecessary. Uh, all things that do not describe David Millard Haskell, the author of that, who joins us now. David, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much for that. Now, I wanted to move to a, a different issue entirely, although you might even be able to apply the same findings, which is that the uh, thing that's presented to us as a harm reduction tool is not, in fact, uh, limiting or mitigating harm, and in some cases, maybe exacerbating it. But uh, before we get into this, I, I want to share this clip of a, a rather insane exchange that took place on the margins of a Richmond Council meeting in British Columbia, where uh, several people from the community, including this uh, lovely mild-mannered Asian man you'll see on the left of this video, were there to protest the council's uh, advancing of a proposal to put a safe injection site in a neighborhood in Richmond. Take a look at what happened. Now, look, that woman, I, in a lot of ways, feel a little bit bad for because I, I don't think she is all right up there. But people chanting no drugs are told to go home, to get lost. They're not Canadian. Some uh, things that in a different era we would have been told were right-wing racist dog whistles. But when they're directed at people who are standing up for their community, it's a bit of a different takeaway from that. Uh, I want to talk about that, but also the broader issue here and what's happening in British Columbia, which is uh, just doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on so-called safe supply. Adam Zevo is a columnist and reporter with the National Post who has written extensively on this, probably more than most others in Canada. And it's always good to have him on the show. Adam, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. I, just, let's just talk about that Richmond video for, for a moment here before we get into your work on this, because I would say that the guy on the left is probably far more representative of a lot of suburban Canadians uh, on these issues. Well, the thing is that most racialized Canadians don't support the harm reduction radicalism that we see uh, happening throughout Canada. I mean, yes, there's going to be a small portion of activists uh, who think that giving out free drugs is integral to racial justice and social justice. But I mean, most most immigrant communities are actually quite socially conservative. And, and especially for East Asians, uh, when they see opioids being handed out so wantonly, for them, it's reminiscent of the opioid uh, wars of the 1800s when China was weakened by the UK coming in and essentially plowing their country with opioids. So I can understand there's a bit of colonial trauma there. 
Yeah, no, that, that's a fair point. And, and to bring it back into the provincial realm here, I mean, I remember when supervised injection sites uh, or so-called safe injection sites were, were seen as tremendously controversial, but now they're just an accepted fact. And, and the, the people that were advocating for that have been advocating for safe supply. It's not enough just to give someone a clean room and a clean needle. You have to provide them with so-called clean drugs. And you and I have spoken about this. We had a, a panel on this show with two of the experts who have spoken out about this. Uh, the data are not showing that this is working. And you're saying that BC is aware of that, but is still proceeding. To some degree, they're aware of that, that it's not working. To another degree, they have access to bad research and they don't fully understand how flawed the research is. So back in January, the British Medical Journal published a study which claimed that safer supply reduced mortality by 55 to 91%. And that study was cited by the BC government when they announced that they were going to expand safer supply despite the fact that it was causing community harms. And so I found that study a bit strange. So I reviewed it with a team of seven physicians as well as a scientist who's trained in stats analysis. And we found that the study cherry picked its data. So there were two ways that it did that. So first of all, uh, half of the people received safe supply received evidence-based medications such as methadone and suboxone, which are proven to reduce mortality. So obviously you ask yourself, well, what's actually causing the mortality reductions here, the methadone or the safer supply? The researchers tried to filter out the effects of methadone, but there were really big gaps in their methodologies that were kind of inexplicable. And we found in the data, there was a subpopulation of people who had not received these evidence-based medications in the 30 days before receiving safer supply. And for that population, there was no statistically significant reduction in mortality for safer supply patients, which suggests that any mortality reductions that did exist were driven by methadone and suboxone, not by safer supply. Uh, but they ignored that. The second thing is that they measured mortality reductions after one week, which is really, really weird. And if you want to make a comparison, imagine if there was a new kind of insulin and some researchers said, well, we're gonna just study what the impact of the insulin is after one week, instead of looking at long-term outcomes of repeated administration over the course of a year. And when we looked at the data, we found out that the mortality rates between the safer supply and the non-safer supply patients was more or less the same after one year, indicating that whatever mortality reductions we saw after one week, if they even existed at all, were meaningless after a year. But of course, this was omitted as well. So this study, which showed that safer supply does not work, was repackaged as evidence that it does, which I think is unethical, but the BC government didn't catch up on that. Now, now, do you think this is an example of, you know, because there are lots of situations in which researchers start out down a path and they don't really realize or uh, for, for whatever reason that what they're doing is uh, maybe not providing the, the best picture or the most whole picture. Do you think that's the case here? Or do you think it's people that are deliberately designing studies so that they yield a, a particular outcome? It would be hard to say how much of it is deliberate and how much of it is just a certain level of incompetence. What I will say is that safer supply advocates do have a tendency to uh, exaggerate the quality of their research. Well, the they were most caught on self-reporting uh, studies, which you and I have talked about in the past of, you know, how do you feel about this program? Great. Yes, it's working. <laughs> yeah. You know, Andrew, I'm going to give you some free drugs. Do you feel like this program, which gives you free drugs that you can sell on the street is great? Oh, you think it's great? Well, I guess that means it works. And we're not going to ask anyone else. Obviously, that doesn't work. Um, so this is a step up. So they did a quality study, but the study didn't give them the results that they wanted to. So they seem to have misrepresented it. Uh, so once again, it's 
it's just really, I, I don't want to say that this is intentional because that's hard to prove and I don't want to be mm. sued for defamation. <laughs> Fair but enough. Is that it does raise eyebrows. Yeah, and I think that it is impossible to separate out ideology here and, and ideology among the research and certainly ideology in BC. Now, look, if you want to say, this is our position, this is what we believe, this is what we're going to do, power to you, let the voters decide. But it's when people are trying to hide what is ideological behind science that I, I tend to get a little bit concerned. Yeah, I mean, look, so I was at the Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine's annual scientific conference back in October. So I met a lot of safer supply advocates in real life and seemed to be ideological and, and they're kind of like they're zealots and you can show them whatever evidence that you have that this doesn't, this is working, that it's being diverted and they do all sorts of mental gymnastics. So around that time, I had, was working on a piece where I had found dozens of examples of people selling thousands of safer supply hydromorphone pills on Reddit. And I was sitting beside a safer supply advocate in a, in a presentation. And afterwards I showed her all of this and she was saying, well, how do we know that it's real? And there was some specific packaging, which is only used in safer supply. And she's saying, well, how do we know that, you know, drug dealers didn't go and get that from the garbage and then put, you know, fake drugs in it. And they were doing whatever they could to, to delegitimize this. And after a while, it just seemed like they were unwilling to accept the possibility that this program is not working, which is sad. And I can understand that psychologically because no one wants to admit that this thing that you've staked your identity and that you put so much of your effort into advocating for might actually be harming people. How do BC health officials square the fact that this situation has just become such a, a major a major issue in BC relative to other provinces. I mean, what, why do they think that their approach is working when their outcomes don't seem to be better than elsewhere in the country? Well, I mean, the way that they're looking at it is that they have this hypothesis, which is unfalsifiable. So they say that safer supply saves lives. Uh, and then when they don't see any evidence of that, they say, well, that just means that there's not enough safer supply. So in the way that they are framing it, it is impossible to disprove their hypothesis. Hmm. which basically justifies the infinite, the infinite expansion of safer supply. But we do have to keep in mind that many researchers are activists at heart and, and they really strongly advocate for drug legalization and safer supply is a step towards that. Uh, and I do want to stress that many of the people who are in this space right now who control addiction policymaking, they, they don't come from a medical background. You know, they don't actually have medical degrees oftentimes. Uh, many of them come from public health which is much less rigorous. And then they basically have displaced the addiction physicians who are actually fully trained in this. So the people who are calling the shots are not fully educated on this matter. Oh, and that, that was, I mean, the phenomenon we had discussed was on this panel that you were on on the show a few months back with Sharon Koivu in, in London, Ontario, my city, where, you know, here she's an actual physician, but she's kind of on the sidelines when a lot of these people you've just described seem to be setting the agenda. Well, and that's the problem, right, is that from what I heard, uh, it is the mainstream position in addiction medicine that addiction physicians and psychologists do not support safer supply. And that's what I heard at the very beginning when I was researching this. And no one wants to speak up about it because they were afraid. They were afraid that they would be cyberbullied by harm reduction activists. And they were afraid that they would lose access to federal grants. There was a culture of fear. And slowly that culture of fear has dissipated. And now you see more public criticism, but fundamentally speaking, addiction physicians are being sidelined and they are being told that their very practice 
is, is oppressive. Harm reduction activists, for example, Zoe Dodd in Toronto, she's like one of the main ones. She is delib she has explicitly said that she wants to dismantle addiction medicine. And how do you how do you deal with someone like that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a sometimes they say the quiet part out loud. So I, I think that's a very good point. Uh, Adam Zebo with the National Post. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. And we, we've been doing a data heavy show. We've talked about DEI data, drug and addiction data. We'll end it off with a good old fashioned budgetary data. I know sending you off into the weekend with the stuff you really come here for talking about debt and deficits, but it matters and it's important and it's my show. So we're going to do it because there's a little bit of good news. It's, it's kind of cloaked good news. You got to really, really search for the good news because we know that the multi-billion dollar deficits, which some reports have said could last us decades, are leading to a major debt crisis in Canada, which is causing there to be more money that we have to spend on interest payments, which is then causing more deficits. And it's very circular, but courtesy of our friends at the Fraser Institute, a case for spending restraint in Canada, how the federal government can balance the budget. The report they have published finds it can in fact be done. And if a government really, really wanted to, the budget could be balanced by 2026, 2027. Well, this sounded too good to be true. So I wanted to dig into it with Jake Fuss, who is the director of fiscal studies at the Fraser Institute. Jake, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks very much for having me on. Okay, so you're saying it could be done. You're not saying it will be done, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, we've seen a market deterioration in the state of federal finances since 2015 with substantial increases in spending and debt over that time. Um, but what we do in our study is just look at a couple of different scenarios of how we could actually return back to a balanced budget, either by 2025 or 2026. 2026, uh, I think, is a very realistic scenario um, that just offers a, a solution for government to really reduce the growth rate in spending over two years to 0.3%. It wouldn't actually require you to reduce spending from current 2024 levels. We could actually get back to a balanced budget by 2026 if the government just simply demonstrates some spending restraint. Now, th this is, I think, an important point because there are ways you could balance a budget that would not be particularly healthy or sustainable. I mean, the government could raise taxes 500% and balance the budget uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's balanced, but you haven't actually had a good fiscal portrait. What does your version uh, look like? Is it uh, just spending cuts? Is it uh, revenue increases or is it a combination of both? Yeah, so really what we're looking at here is just pulling back on spending. Um, so there's actually a lot of important research from some Harvard economists where they looked at uh, past history of fiscal consolidation among OECD countries, and they found it was far more effective to either reduce spending or show spending restraint rather than raising taxes to actually balance budgets. It's better economically, and it was more successful fiscally as well. Um, so there's a lot of research around this area. Um, and what we're simply proposing is just a 0.3% increase in spending for over a two-year period. Um, so that isn't even asking necessarily for spending reductions from current levels. It's just peeling back on that spending that you have planned, um, projected for the next two years. Um, that's really a realistic scenario for the government over a two-year period. So we, we've heard in the past, and I, I don't have the whole laundry list of them, but we've heard from the parliamentary budget officer some pretty grim projections. I mean, the one that really stood out a couple of years ago was that the budget wouldn't be balanced until 2070. Now, that's based on the track that the government had set out at the time. Uh, you know, it stands to reason that the longer we stay on the current track, the, the longer it would take for this cor course correction you're describing, right? 
Yeah, that's that's part of the issue too. Is it's not that we're in necessarily you know a crisis situation like we were in the mid nineteen nineties yet. Uh, but if we keep going down this track of continually running deficits, continually accumulating debt, and with elevated interest rates now, that means you're borrowing more and more money. More of that money is going towards debt interest costs, um, which are already consuming a substantial amount of revenue, um, over 10% uh, in the current year. So that, that problem really just gets worse over time the longer you put this off. I mean, the latest uh, fiscal projections for the government show we're not going to balance the budget bef anytime before 2028 at the earliest. And that's only because their projections go out five years and that's where they end. So, you know, other reports from the PBO show it's going to be longer than that. Um, so we really need to start talking about actual solutions here rather than just kicking the can down the road and hoping this goes away somehow. I know there's often a difference between, you know, politics and policy. And I think both sides tend to be annoyed with the other uh, because they say that the other doesn't, you know, understand how things are. I'm aware of the challenge that there isn't just a line item in the federal budget called waste that you can look at and say, all right, well, let's just cut waste. Waste is uh, buried and embedded in a lot of different departments. So how easy would it be or how difficult would it be to really go in and find ways that you could uh, make some of these adjustments that you're talking about without taking a, a hatchet to entire programs or departments, which politically tend to be very difficult to justify doing? Well, I think they should take the approach that the Kretchen government took in the 1990s. They really had a six step process to evaluate programs and services on a case by case basis. Um, you know, so it was about, you know, is this an appropriate role for government to be involved in? Um, are we running this program or service as efficiently as possible? So they had a whole set of criteria that they were looking at. And they're not just, you know, chopping for the sake of chopping. Um, they're actually evaluating these programs on whether or not they're actually effective and whether they're serving what, what the program actually is trying or intending to do. Um, so I think that's a similar approach that the federal government could take now. Um, but we know that, you know, over the years, there's many examples of government fiscal waste. Um, you know, we had one report that looked at uh, Auditor General reports uh, between the 1980s and 2013, and it found that, you know, mismanagement or waste of government was well over $100 billion during that time, according to those Auditor General reports. So we know that this is an area where the government can certainly make changes, um, is cutting back on that fiscal waste or, or removing it entirely. Yeah, and, and what you're talking about here largely looks like a question of efficiency, not extraneous programs. You're not saying we need to cut this or cut that in a, a sense that would, uh, it looks like, have a huge uh, effect on service delivery, are you? No, exactly. I mean, that, and that's just the, the whole point here. It's actually about having effective spending too. Um, you know, there is a role for government. There is a role for programs and services ultimately, um, but the government also needs to have fiscal objectives. They need to have goals and anchors keeping them, um, you know, on a, on a certain track as well. You know, right now we just kind of have policy that isn't even following the government's own self-imposed rules. They're not following their fiscal anchors, you know, or the fiscal goals or fiscal rules, however you want to phrase it. Um, and so we don't really have anything containing government finances right now. Um, so we really need a plan moving forward about not only what we're spending the money on, but also taking that bigger picture look at government spending as well. Who says fiscal policy can't be interesting as we uh, head into our weekend here? Jake Fuss, Director of Fiscal Studies at the Fraser Institute. The study in question is called A Case for Spending Restraint in Canada, How the Federal Government Can Balance the Budget. So I think the real takeaway, it can be done. Uh, if you don't do it, it's just because you decided not to. So uh, that would be the warning I'd put at the feet of any federal lawmakers here. Uh, Jake, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks very much for having me on.
All right, that does it for us here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Back tomorrow with Off the Record featuring Harrison Faulkner and Sue Ann Levy, as well as yours truly. And then The Andrew Lawton Show resumes next week. Not on Monday. We've got family day, but we will be back on Tuesday. So uh, stay tuned for all that. And in the meantime, thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.